Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. This is the Truth to Power show. I'm your host, Vijay R. Nathan, and this is Radio Free Brooklyn. On today's uh, episode, we're going to be uh, having a conversation with Diana Delgado, who is a poet and playwright, a graduate of the Master's in Poetry program at Columbia University. She has served as the poet in residence of the Northern New Mexico College and won the James D. Fellon Award in uh, Poetry from the San Francisco Foundation. Her poems have, been, uh, have appeared in the Indiana Review, North American Review, Plowshares, Ninth Letter, and Fourteen Hills. Her chapbook, um, Late, Nights, Late Night Talks with the Men I Think I Trust, was chosen for the 2015 Center for Book Arts Chapbook Award. Uh, as a Letras Latinas Residency Fellow, she's the member of the um, Writing Communities and was a 2015 Work Study Fellow at the Breadloaf Writers Conference. Uh, her script, Desire Road, was given a stage reading at La Mama in New York City, and she co-directed her play After the Fire in a workshop production uh, in, um, at Intar Theater in 2014. So welcome her to the program. We'll start the conversation now. Thank you. Here we are. Welcome to the Truth to Power show with your host, Vijay R. Nathan. And here I am with uh, Diana Delgado, a poet uh, who's going to be talking a little bit about, we're going to talk a little bit about her life and, and her writing. Uh, first, let's start off with a question. Uh, welcome, first of all. Thank you. I uh, hope you're doing well. And uh, let's start off with a question about where you were born and where you grew up in the beginning of your life. Sure. Um, so I grew up in Southern California. I was born uh, in West Covina, California. And uh, that's where I uh, was at for like the first, I guess, close to 30 years of my life before I moved to New York. Mm -hmm. So what was it like there? Like, tell us a little bit about the cultural upbringings yeah. and, yeah. So, so my mom um, immigrated from Mexico when she was probably about uh, maybe before she was 10 years old mm -hmm. with her family. Um, and then she met my dad when she was very young in high school. Um, she immigrated from Mexico. Mm -hmm. And my dad is probably like 1.5 generation or maybe even second generation Mexican. Um, so when I was growing up, it was, you know, we were Chicanos. That's what my mom would always say. You're mm -hmm. Chicana. Uh, she would call other women Chicanos. Um, so that was kind of where I grew up. I kind of grew up in the intersection between sort of feeling very American and also feeling very Mexican. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of these interstices of these places, um, and but m mostly where I grew up, there was there was a lot of Latinos. That was mostly uh, the population that was in my school. So I never really felt other because my family was there, and everyone else, <laughs> everyone else was Latino too. Yeah, and how did you start to develop a poetic voice or interest in poetry, mm -hmm. or how mm -hmm. did that come about, or what age? Yeah, um, um, well, first. First off, I think I was always a reader. Um, that was something that, you know, books always really fascinated me. Uh -huh. And um, from there, I ended up um, attending community college at Mount San Antonio College. And I took a course in Mexican-American literature. And um, I read amazing work in that class. But the one book that stood out to me was Lorna D. Cervantes's, um from the Cables of Genocide, Poems on Love and Hunger, and I read that book, and I just felt like I, I want to know how to do this. Yeah. I don't know how she did this, but how can I learn how to do this? 
Mm-hmm. You know, so it's very inspirational to uh, find your own voice, find your voice within that. Tell us a little bit about the book then. That's just so pivotal. Sure. Like, what what is the what is the themes or what? Is... L- Learner's book. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. Um, Learner's book is everything. Um, it's surrealism. It's about growing up poor. It's about shame. It's about love. It's about her mother's death. Um, it's about loss. It's about letting go. Yeah. Um, but the language that she used was so, uh, I guess, so Baroque, um, so different than anything that I had ever heard explain the situation of what it is to be a woman growing up in a, you know, in a, in a Mexican family and all the things that come with that. Um, Mm-hmm. It was just it, it it was just like something just so so different. It was from out of this world. So that's her second book, um, Lorna Lorna de Cervantes' second book. Her first book is Implumada, which is just as good. But I remember really reading over and over again her second book. But it definitely has the same tropes that I think I myself am very attached to, which is sort of girlhood and what it means to express yourself um, in a world culturally that sometimes doesn't necessarily allow for that expression to happen in the mm. way that you'd like it. Yeah, yeah. So growing up, you kind of were highly influenced by this because you wanted to also amplify the experience of your own experience and how it connected and inspired you to talk about your own experiences. And uh, would you say that was the case or like? Kind yeah, of, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that you know, everybody in my family is a storyteller. Um, they may not consider themselves that, but mm-hmm. I think one of my, you know, things that I think about my family most is, you know, whenever we would get together, everybody would be telling stories. Good, good. And we would sit down at a table and my grandfather would tell stories. And we would just, you know, everybody had all of these things that they would talk about. And um, they didn't necessarily pursue... Um, profession of writing but they still had these really amazing stories and that was something that you know I guess kind of pushed me along to think about like what is the story um so mm-hmm. that I can then sort of talk about that and share my experiences with other um women and um girls um yeah. men too I think but yeah yeah but uh so growing up where you went to um where did you study in, in secondary education or graduate school? Yeah, um, so yeah. I went to UC Riverside. I, I didn't do very well in high school, meaning mm-hmm. like I wasn't, it wasn't one of those schools where I was college bound or anything yeah. like that. It was kind of me just making it through. And then um, I, I went to community college for a very long time, started from the very bottom, and um, that was at Mount Sac. And then I went to UC Riverside, and that's where I studied creative writing, poetry, and I met a lot of amazing um people there mm-hmm. that's great and um so ultimately you at what age did you start uh formally publishing poetry or and when had you started i think it was process? at community college uh-huh. i was writing these really um diary like poems yeah. which were looking back um they were me trying to find my voice and yeah. trying to play with language and it was at there that i i think i won a contest or something Mm-hmm. can't remember what and yeah. it was published in like mount san antonio had this like literary journal mm-hmm. and i remember um publishing something there and then you know as you become older and you start entering into more things but yeah i, I now have work 
um, in many places, but that yeah. was definitely the start. So you're talking a little bit about kind of hinting at the trajectory of kind of how you started with talking about or writing about more journal entry, but how, what was the trajectory? How did you start to, can you go a little bit more into like how sure. you developed over the years? And- uh, well, the first thing was that one of the main things that happened to me was that I was able to study with Lorna. Oh, good, good. Um, oh. Lorna had this, um, it was on, it was a Tayeri shell, which was over in um, Isla, um, Isla de los Mujeres, mm-hmm. and um, over in the Yucatan. She had this really amazing uh, workshop that I went to with other women, uh-huh. and I studied with her, and I think that that was something while I was at UC Riverside. Uh-huh. And since then, I've studied with, with many people, so just sort of seeking out teachers and studying and reading a lot of books and going to conferences and mm. just keeping at it. It's a very mm. slow going, but it's something that is really fulfilling. Yeah, so Yucatan, if you just clarify, that was, that's in, where is that again? That's or? in that's in Mexico. That's in Mexico. Mexico. Okay, so, yeah. Um, right, yeah. yeah, it's in the, so I guess it's the study, Caribbean. Yeah. yeah. Okay, good, good. So you have the opportunity to study with the writer. Yeah, and, there. Um, she yeah. had this amazing workshop that she offered a scholarship to that I was able to go oh, and study for a week. And I think that that was probably one of, you know, I had known other teachers, but I had never really known like a poet that, intimately and especially yeah. her somebody that i felt so connected to that had also come from california yeah so uh, you studied uh there um that was after you uh, graduate school what year was that or that was what year was that um yeah, right. i would say that was maybe when i was at uc riverside it was probably like maybe mid-90s Mid-90s, okay, yeah. and then i graduated from there and then i applied to columbia mm-hmm. and maybe three other schools and I remember one of my professors at the time saying, don't apply there. You're never going to get in. Yeah. <laughs> Just funny. Yeah. Um, I always say that. I don't know, because it's kind of nice that I yeah. did. Um, yeah. But so I applied there and then I moved to New York. I'd never been to New York. Mm. Never. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. And I just kind of showed up one very muggy August. And I, I've been here now for 14 years. Excellent. Excellent. So, um now, ultimately, that was uh, so. Now, ultimately, you worked towards continuing your publications, and you had uh, one chapbook we'll talk a little bit about before we go to a poetry reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, Late nights with uh, men, I think I trust. Mm-hmm. So, um, can you talk a little bit about the development of that chapbook and when it started? Or, yeah, um, I had been working on a manuscript for a very, very long time, meaning that I thought I had identified some things that I wanted to really kind of talk about in the work, and. Um, but one of the things that changed or shifted was that I began writing prose poems, which I really, really am fascinated by. Prose poems, um, vignettes, other people call them flash fiction, mm. flash nonfiction. Um, I started writing those and I started developing something that I thought was more of a thread, uh, a different thread in the same sort of world building that I was doing for the book. And uh, I created the chapbook. I put it together. I shared it with some friends. Luckily, I have a really great group of friends. Shared it with some friends. It sort of gave me some ideas and organization. And then I, I submitted it. Um, and then it was published in 2015. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit more about the thematically or kind of what mm-hmm. what uh, issues or themes you're dealing with with that? Yeah. Um, so a lot of the poems are written in the first person. Um, they're written from the, vo- the speaker, which is and isn't myself, because I think that I'm very different if I'm taking on the persona of the poet. But 
um, first person and talking a lot about loss, um, losses in the family that have to do with the incarceration of family members, losses of people um, due to drugs. Um, a lot of it also centers around sort of confusion or sort of ruminations about what it means to love imperfect people when sometimes those are your family members. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of, I think, struggle or questioning of what it means to really be in the center of a family that is experiencing so much difficulties. Yeah. So why don't we take a moment to listen to one of the poems and then we can turn to our conversation. But uh, I like to select a poem and then... Um, Sure. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, so the poem I'm about to read is a poem in sections. It's called um, Songs of Escape. One, our house, two doors, a window that never opens. Two, a nurse shines a pen light into my eye and nods when I answer. My hair is falling out again. The doctors don't know why. God does. So does mom. I lean over a sink the color of seashells, cutting myself, showing the world that I can sweat into the symptom too, watch the doves pour out of me. A star shoots across the sky. Dad traps the calico tabby that killed our bird. She's pushed into a plastic bag and then into the gutter, so she'll learn. Tears go by. I sit at the kitchen table misspelling pleas for help, title one of them, people to run from, Trini, Juice, Donito, Wolf, Bugsy, Joey Bulldog, Bewilder, El Escorpion. Come winter, I'm older, I sing. I carry a red flame in the pocket of my nightgown, and I'm slapped until I learn to ask for softer fruit, semen, blood, egg yolk, ordinary things girls are forced to swallow. My boyfriend finger fucks the part that feels good, I don't say it, but I'm going to marry him. He won't say it, but he's never going to marry me. I turn in sleep, the branches outside tadpole green. Still parts of me haven't. They stay very still, like when someone's touching me. Easter, the sky a full-blown rose. From under the shade of a loquat tree, my uncle says, you're writing a ghost story, a book for a man who's never going to come. Excellent. Thanks so much. Thank you. Um, Thank you. So um, why don't we circle back a little bit to your life story, now going through the lens of, you know, religion and faith. So uh, what was your religious upbringing and how does that inform your work? Yeah. Um, so I've all, I, I was raised very Catholic, mm -hmm. um, but kind of old school Catholic, meaning that um, I would travel back to Mexico um when I was, you know, in my teens, probably in my early teens, I would go with my grandparents. And um, there's a lot of mythology around the devil. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of mythology around what happens when you do something bad. Um, there is a lot of talk. Like, for instance, um, whenever I would go to Mexico, um, there's this where my family's from, which is Nayarit, San Juan de Abajo, Nayarit. It's a little bit close to uh, Puerto Vallarta. Um there's this kind of jungle that was above the town, very, very old town. 
And I remember saying that I wanted to go there and um, my grandfather telling me that I couldn't go there because there were lizards that used to walk on two legs like men and they would steal little girls. (laughs) So I obviously didn't want to go into the jungle, although I was fascinated about what what that creature looked like. Um, So there was a lot of mythology mixed in with sort of um, the Catholicism. Um, I've since sort of changed. Um, Mm. I have different views on that now, but I think that it was definitely very um, Catholic to the point to where, um, you know, there was a point where I think during my adolescence where I would have these night terrors and I would see Jesus and, you know, they were very apocalyptic. I've always had a very apocalyptic um, sense of of religion. Okay. So, like, growing up, you had kind of, uh, you had a lot of, just to kind of clarify, so you had a lot of, um, you know, kind of the, the, would you say that they were very overbearing with the, the, would you say the the people around you were, would you use the word overbearing or they were kind of, how was, in what way was that narrative of uh, Mm. the apocalyptic you know, in your in your experience, sure. would you say that it was it was something that you rejected, and even at a young age, or you were just kind of like impressing upon you? I think or? it was something that I was just afraid of. Afraid of, yeah. I think it was just for me uh, how I process it was that mm. I was just very afraid. Yeah. Um, very fearful uh, to the point to where I would, um, you know, be obsessed about maybe doing the right thing. So maybe mm. I'd wake up at night. Let's just say this is some sort of phase where I would wake up. And I thought, let's just say if I had a religious type of nightmare, I would count the tiles as Mm. I walk through the house. Just so there was a lot of sort of like, oh, this is like a little curse. I'm going to try and move away from it by Mm. maybe creating these. um, Like these rituals. Yeah. yeah. Like (laughs) Like my own, like, yeah, yeah, like my own counter spells. Yeah. um, Because I thought it was so powerful. And it's still something that, um, remains with me a lot in my mm. work the supernatural is something yeah. that is definitely functioning in my work yeah i'm definitely interested in that as well like how we have the religious um you know narrative and then whether or not some people think it's it's um you know we also have the shamanic or like kind of spiritism spiritism mm-hmm. uh spiritualism i know what the kind of the belief in spirits you know sure so um i don't really know too much so if you can elaborate a little bit more on, on the mexican tradition of Catholicism, how whether or not that's housed within that tradition, uh, kind of the idea of spirits or the idea of ghosts or the idea of what we think of as cultism yeah. uh, in the West, you know, uh, is that actually uh, kind of contradictory or would you say it's kind of part of or what role I, does it play? Yeah. You know what, I, 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 I think the only way that I can answer that is maybe just to s- describe and sort of observe that I think that one of the things that is different in terms of my specific Mm-hmm. Um, Mexican upbringing is that you're very much in contact with the supernatural at all times, yeah. meaning that um, somebody passes away and you're very likely that you're going to see that person, right? Um, yeah. You're also, there's also a lot of deal making, meaning like, you know, one of the myths is, is you know, you can, if, if you call the devil, you can speak to him. Mm. Um, and, but obviously you have to give him your soul. There's, oh. a, there's a lot of sort of, these things of of you kind of interaction interacting with them with which I think is different than other religions where yeah. they see that as being evil. Where I think that for me it was something that that that's just something that kind of happens if someone mm. passes away. 
of course they're going to show up again after yeah. they're dead. Yeah. You had this relationship with them. Uh-huh. So and I guess I saw little threads of that in the poem that you read even. Yeah. And kind of some work that I, I read a little bit pr- prior to this that you have threads like on the shadow of Absolutely. the... Um, of the religion and of the connection with the spiritual world. Mm-hmm. So um, at, now, as you see, you were kind of hinting that as you grew up, your perspectives changed or sure. kind of moved away from. Can you elaborate a little bit more on how your uh, snapshotting how you got to that, how where you are now or where are you now? Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that it's something that I'm still very fascinated by um, mm. and something that I almost probably innately still kind of have as part of my own infrastructure. But I think that one of the things that I am lean more toward um, is less organized religion, less that I'm at church, whatever church that is every Sunday, and more um, part of what does my life mean in in relation to the universe, in Mm. relation to history in general. I think that for me that's more profound, and I guess that that would be more leaning toward a potentially like a more Buddhist um, mm. perspective or like um, the perspective in, in yoga, if yoga could yeah. be considered a religion where yeah. you're part and parcel of a larger cosmic intelligence, which mm. I hate those words, but, yeah. you know, it sounds the like... The lack I, of vocabulary. Yeah, I, mean, I, I yeah. mean, it's it's almost, you can't really explain it, but it's more about that, Yeah. So you haven't exactly swung towards... Uh, kind of more scientific humanism, which you would say somewhere between kind yeah. of materialist scientific perspective and 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 kind of very religious, but more like a a, a nice middle ground. You would say, would you say that or? Yeah, say, I mean, yeah. I think it's I think it's a a, a de- definite middle ground. I mean, I still do things where you know, like today on the bus, there was something I was thinking about, and I made the sign of the cross. Yeah. You know, and yeah. and there is a deep belief. You know, that's you know, like I pray and I do things like that. And mm. people are like, well, who are you praying to? And I'm yeah. like, well, God, yeah. well, who is God? <laughs> I, you know, honestly, I don't know. He's never showed up, but yeah. I do believe that there is something um, maybe around. I don't know how much power he or she has, but mm. I do know that there is other presences aside from yeah. The day to day. Yeah, I also have that because I was um, I brought up brought up in a, in a kind of religious upbringing, uh, but uh, I went to Catholic school. But my mm. parents were kind of the Hindu mm-hmm. slant, and yeah. uh, also I kind of even though now I've kind of rejected a lot of that kind of doctrinal beliefs, um, I do kind of fall back in that programming almost in our in our body or in our psyche sure. that we of how we were trained. You know, a child kind of has has a long standing impact on how we perceive yeah. the world, what we're responding to. Mm-hmm. So I can I can understand that. Um, so now, uh, so now why don't we, why don't we listen to one more poem sure. and then we can continue. Uh, we, yeah. Good thing here. Who makes love to us after we die? I turn on the radio and hear voices. Girls becoming women after tragedy. Talk about dreams. His heart was covered in a thin shell the color of the moon, and when I touched it, I grew old. The best movies have a philosophy to them. Dorothy, after being subjected to girl-on-girl violence, is rescued. Someone hung himself on that set, a man who loved but couldn't have a certain woman. Management said it was a bird. The best movies begin with an encounter and end with someone setting someone free. 
in Coppola's version of Dracula. My favorite scene is when the camera chases women across the garden until they kiss. I once made love to a man who asked, after many years, for me to choke him, so that later, cleaning a kitchen cabinet, I read a recipe he'd written into the wood, and I had a hard time believing him. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, now another thread that seems to be coming up, uh, perhaps we can follow, is about kind of your identity. Also, you talked a little bit about your identity, Mexican-American, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the influences of the um, traditions that you were brought up in. But following as a woman, you know, as a woman and a poet, uh, kind of how that plays into it. It seems to be very thematic, the kind of recurring theme about the relationship between men and women. Yeah. So if you could talk a little bit about kind of like how, you know, how that organically comes up. and Yeah, you know. I mean, I think that a lot of it un- underlying sort of the emotional aspects that I kind of touch upon, a lot of it has to do with the power that is sometimes given to men just mm. in, in, and I would say in my experience, because this isn't yeah. the same in all Mexican households, but I think in my household is the power and sort of the entitlement that men are given just by, um, I guess, the fact that they're men. Mm. Um, I think that that's something that I have always kind of both struggled with, but at the same time, uh, both feel comfortable with because that was kind of how I was brought up. Yeah. Um, so it's something that I'm very fascinated by those types of roles. Um, but at the same time, I think in my work, I explore the problems that can happen um, between um, men and women when those roles are enacted or performed rather. Mm. Calling attention to, it seems calling attention to the, um, uh, the, things that we consider to be natural, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Like we kind of take for granted the idea that, uh, you know, I think even from a young age, it seems like uh, people are, you know, men and women are socialized in different ways that in the classroom we have, you know, kind of this encouragement of boys to speak up. And, you know, a lot yeah. of times, you know, how is that your experience or how, how would this kind of, how was your experience of this? Yeah, I mean, body? I'm the yeah. oldest in my family. You know, mm-hmm. I'm the oldest girl, the first grandchild on my uh, mom's side, and I think that there was a lot of expectation. I think in my were in my household to obey, mm. um, and I understand where that comes from, but obeying is not necessarily the preparation for artists or free thinkers. Yeah. Um, so it does, it does that type of sort of box often does really damage people who maybe have alternative opinions because there's this sense that, you know, you're, you're being disobedient. Mm, yeah, I think from a young age, I think parents have this idea that, you know, oh, listen to me because I'm the parent. But then when they get older, they're like, oh, why aren't you thinking for yourself? I mean, you know, yeah. it's that, that dichotomy I definitely <laughs> see in, in a lot of parents, yeah. you know, yeah. that they're not yeah. encouraging free thinking or, or uh, critical analysis at a young age. And then they expect it to magically appear when you're older. Yeah, you know? yeah but, no, um, I completely agree. I mean, I think that one of the interesting things is that my mom was a very young mother. I think my mom was mm. probably 18 when she had me. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, that was the other instances that as I was growing up, I was able to see a lot about the relationship that she had with my father. Um, and I think that that was something that I was able to observe, I guess, 
through their 20s and stuff because I, I was seeing it mm. right there in, in front of me. Um, yeah, and, and your relationship with, uh, if you can go a little bit more into the relationship with the, the other men in your life and how that informs the, um, I read a few of the poems from the title. The title itself seems to be so invocative of late night late night talks with men I think I trust. Yeah. yeah it seemed very evocative and I, uh, and how that kind of connects with your experience and how you build up towards collection of poems with that title. Sure, or, sure. Um, I, I mean, I think um, one of the things that has affected me the most in my life is probably my relationships with men, um, uh, so-called romantic relationships, um, mm. because I've had a difficult relationship with my father. Yeah. Um, and it's taken me a very long time mm. to kind of, just kind of admit it and be like, well, that was kind of the first, my first go at it mm. in terms of having a relationship with somebody um, of, of the opposite sex, that and my brother, right? Mm. Um, so those two people really shaped kind of how I interact and who I am as a woman, if I identified as a woman. Um, but I think that then when I'm interacting with sort of like a partner or something like that, I think it's very different, but I do think that I bring a lot of um, those experiences with me, um, both fortunately and unfortunately. Yeah. So, um, so ultimately, I think the what is the kind of with the, specifically with the work that you wrote the chapbook. Um, can you talk a little bit about what was kind of? Can you go a little bit more into like sure. what the the poems and that kind of go into? Or, yeah, um, yeah. I think that the poems talk a little bit about my mom a lot of the poems talk a lot about sort of my father's drug addiction mm. um, my dad uh was uh he's he still is as far as i know uh heroin addict since i was very young um and he was part of that situation that happened i think probably in the 60s where there was a lot of heroin that was being flooded into chicano neighborhoods mm. so there's that relationship and then me talking a little bit about my mom's relationship with him and me sort of watching them interact um, in this relationship and seeing that they really did love each other. And I think that they still do. um, But seeing the dysfunction in that um, Mm. and also seeing a lot of violence around me, both um, in my neighborhood and then also just in within um, situations that happened with my younger brother, who's we're very close in age. Mm. Um, with him being put in jail at a very young age. Yeah. And then ultimately you're working towards, you know, in 2017, you're given the National Endowment of the Arts uh, Award. Yeah. Uh, it's really great uh, for a manuscript yeah. called uh, People to Run From. Yeah, which, yeah. Again, it seems, is that continuing on kind of those it themes? It is, or? it is. Yeah. You know, I haven't left yeah. any. <laughs> yeah. I haven't, I haven't left any of those things. Um, those are, that's pretty much what I focus on. Mm. I think that, um, in that manuscript, what I'm doing is, is there's a lot more prose poems. Mm. There's a lot more fragmented narrative in the in that work, um, and less of a focus on like line breaks and yeah. traditional um, poetry, uh, yeah. lyric poetry. But um, it's more uh, prose stuff that I'm working on, and mm. it's the same themes. Um, but I think the themes um, go a little bit further into um, the different um, men that I've had in my life you know my grandfather um my dad's friends my uncles Mm. um and some of them really amazing experiences Mm. 
That's good. That's good. So, uh, why don't we read one more poem and then uh, sure. we can uh, last poem. Cool. Yeah. Correspondence. Brother deep in the moth hour and still no altar to speak of. Everyone's got a life they can't stop. Time passes. Nothing survives. The real me slipped out like a hiccup and he marooned himself in the arms of another girl's couch. I have a book for you. It's about life and a real-time G doing it. Mom's fine breaking crooked as an eggshell. Dad, the same teething crocodile. I've never seen so much sad architecture. Remember when the field froze white and Mom tied plastic over our shoes? This is the only place that's ever felt like home. I hope you get this letter before it lights out, or have you learned to read in the dark? Thank you. Okay. Thanks. So, um... Uh, yeah, so it's really good. And that, what is that? What is this poem? What is this? I was just kind of it's reflecting. Okay. No, how, no, no. I just had ahead. to process that poem for a moment. It was really good. And what? Which book is this from? This is all from. Um, this is all from the manuscript that um, I have. Two manuscripts right now. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them is called "Tracing the Horse," mm-hmm. and then the other one is "People to Run From." The last okay. poem that I read is from "Tracing the Horse." Tracing the Horse. Okay, and that's something that you worked on. For uh, just or the any the NEA scholarships for people to run from, right, or or generally yeah. for your work, yeah. Yeah, I think it's in general for my work. I okay, think that good, there yeah. may be some prose poems that are sort of, you know, there's like either like they have a head in in each of the pieces, and depending yeah. on which one gets published, yeah, was, okay, you know good. what I mean. I'll just yeah. sort of leave it there. Good, but yeah, good. yeah. So um, thematically, uh, you know, again to return to kind of how these, you yeah. know, the lens of your experience seems like you're taking from your experiences to kind of create tapestry that speaks to larger uh, narratives about yeah. uh, about gender and about uh, about cultural intercultural perceptions. Um, you know, one of the themes of the show is that, you know, one of the recurrent themes of this show is about how the personal is political yeah, and how agree, our yeah. personal spaces we have to look at them not as like something we hide away but rather something that's very much interconnected with the public narrative you know yeah i think it's something i, I can tell from your work that you're very aware of mm-hmm. and, and you talk a little bit more about how kind of taking very intimate moments uh from your life and kind of putting it out there you know for the world to look at how what the process how that feels or i think you know? um the, the the way that it feels is you feel ashamed you feel embarrassed mm-hmm. you feel you're wrong a lot of the time and you have to push through those feelings and sometimes maybe not push through them but even leave them there Mm. as you create the work um and you're creating the work because you know like you said that it's part of a larger narrative that this i'm this is not the only person Mm. that has experienced these things however these other people that might have experienced these things they don't have a voice yeah they they don't even they wouldn't even know where to start um and and maybe they do but I think that that's one of the considerations that I have because it's not something that is always feels great to write about traumatic situations. Mm. But I think it's something that's necessary. If you have the ability to do it, I think that you need to speak up. Yeah, I think it's really great because I know in my own writing, I 
published a poetry collection called Escape from Samsara, mm. which I kind of, you know, to, to tell the truth, I kind of skimmed the surface of my own personal experience because in some ways I think I have to uh, negotiate how to connect with the more difficult areas, you know, and, and connect yeah. with and be able to access that jugular vein of like, you know, getting into those emotional states that perhaps, you know, now looking back on them, you know, it's easy to romanticize or it's easy yeah. to, uh, you know, sugarcoat them. So mm-hmm. how you can talk about the process of how you're able to get to the spaces without, you know, getting succumbing to those prior states, you know, is there any yeah. process you do? Yeah. Um, I do. Uh, well, I read work by other writers that are taking risks that I see put them in in a place where there's something at, at stake. Um, yeah. um, I Lorna D. Cervantes has this. I remember when I studied with her, she said real acts can never be revoked. Mm. And I think that that has always stayed with me. Um, and I think that it fits this context of what we're talking about is like, you know, sometimes you pick up something and you're like, this was something that really was there, right? That was yeah. really part of the world and that can never be taken away. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something to lean on other writers that you feel have the strength to say the things that maybe you're struggling with mm. so that they can then give you strength because yeah. it's not always going to be... Um, something that you can find within yourself. Mm, yeah, it's so easy, I think, for writers to feel like they have to pander to, you know, the the public and, and not speak to the truth. But actually, yeah. the reverse is true. When you really cap into your individual truth, you, people more people connect with it than uh, than if you're just kind of writing for the masses or what you perceive I agree. The I mean, there's so many stories mm. of, like, when you hear about these really big things, like, I, this is just something random, but, like, you know, that that album of Moby's that was really, really big, right? Yeah. And the story is, is like he had done one album. It was it was terrible um, and he had nothing left to lose. And so yeah. the next thing was, is I'm just going to create something that is for myself. Yeah. But it was true. Um, and I think that that's something that, you know, often happens is when you're not pandering, mm. that you really strike upon your own originality. Yeah. That's good. That's good. So, um, yeah, that's good. And then, um, let's talk a little bit about, um, kind of a little bit more about your process or what you're moving towards now with your trajectory, yeah. uh, in the next few years or what's your goals? 2018 just came along. Oh, uh, man. It's the new year, <laughs> <laughs> another year coming down the road yeah. and, and how kind of your, uh, do you have any New Year's uh, resolutions or New Year's yeah. Uh, objectives? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I need, I would like to put myself in a place where I can begin work on a novel. That's something mm. that I've always kind of wanted to do. And, um, and that's something that I'm, I'm trying to kind of figure out what it means because I have a lot of friends that are novelists and short story writers, but I honestly don't know the first thing other than I have yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Novels that I really, really love. And yeah. I think I it's something that I kind of want to try and do is get into that larger pool yeah. and, and see what it's like to be in that. So, yeah, I, I would love to start working on maybe uh, learning more about long, mm. long range um, creative projects like a novel. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, I think a lot of times what happens in the poetry community is that we have like 
people seeing poetry as not being marketable enough and that, you know, we want to bring our themes into, I have the same impulse, you know, to bring my themes into yeah. a, a longer narrative work, which is for the majority of the public, you know, more accessible. And then that fiction often launches into other projects. So, you know, it's definitely something that yeah. more marketable and more approachable. But I think definitely your theme, thematically, you'll probably continue with the things you're you're interested in and, you know, yeah. you know would you say or... Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. I mean, I feel that um, one of the things is is that um, where I grew up, La Puente, um, it's something that, you know, I dream about it still. I still am in contact with my family um, there. And it's just something that I think that there's so many stories that I still haven't even touched the surface. Yeah. Um, and I would like to do those stories justice, if, if I can even say it that way. Yeah. To kind of tell more about what it is to 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 be part of of that time, that place. And what what have you, as a viewer or as a reader, what have you been listening to or viewing or reading that has it kind of helped you um, get to that? I mean, now, yeah, like in yeah, the, with yeah. your transition into fiction. Sure. Um, yeah. Well, I'm still kind of like, <laughs> I'm I'm still kind of trying to to do to think more long range. But one of the things that I I was reading was Moroso. De Giorgio, I think it's, um, I can't think of the book now. Um, but she has a book, I think, I think it's called I Remember Nightfall. Mm-hmm. Um, she has, she's somebody that, that wrote about um, where she lived. Um, and there's sort of these prose poems, these fragments, but it's just like this very big book. And you do kind of feel like you've read a novel at the end of that. Um, so I'm reading that. Um, and then I also... Um, there's another book, I think it's called um, El Plaza Diamante in, in Catalan, but it's um, called, um, I think, um, In the Time of the Doves by um, Mercedes Rodoreda. And it's one of the most amazing novels ever written. It's like stream of consciousness, but you also follow this woman's life during a war in a relationship with her husband. She's starving. There's... So many other things. Yeah. I mean, I, if you know, sometimes you judge a book by the back cover, and <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh, I don't want to read about this. This sounds really <laughs> heavy and depressing, but yeah. this book is amazing. Yeah, good, good. So uh, we'll close out. I think the interview, but um, we'll just end with um, some more discussion of like, um, what is the closing discussion of like, um, kind of, so when you think about you're talking a little bit about the mixing between kind of prose poems and and poetry. Yeah. Uh, so how is that? Kind of like, is it when you what you're going? You're going to go more into like just fiction, you think, or would you do more of an experimental? Or I don't even know. Yeah. You know, I think it just depends on what turns up on the page. Yeah, I think it's good to be open to the process. You know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think I start everything with like I don't know, so yeah. it just would depend on what it was that would come out. But mm-hmm. I think that I am very interested in sort of those hybrid genres or genres that sort of defy what what exactly it is yeah there's and it seems like now there seems to be a lot of that coming there's out there's so much so much now. Coming out the hybrid. so yeah. much yeah i just saw um the mystery dot doc uh, which is a huge book which is uh-huh. you know basically similar to an arrangement is similar to a poetry a lot of white space and uh, yeah and creating that and, and uh mark danielski Danielski, uh, he wrote house of leaves oh i read yeah, that yeah, yeah, yeah i love yeah. that book and yeah. he's coming out with apparently uh a series of books, 29 volumes or something that are coming oh out. Gosh. The Familiar, which is, uh, uh, I just started to read it, but uh, it's, it's it's like a whole, 
it's projected to be like 26 volumes. Uh, it's credible that, you know, that he's able to <laughs> get an audience for this. You know, I wonder great. if he yeah. did, if he thought of that or the publisher did. Probably, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. But um, I just started reading a little bit of the first book, but it's it's basically similar to the using the white space and using the page as like an art piece of art. So yeah, that's great. Yeah. I think that work is very exciting. I mm. mean, I think that it's something that it's almost not even um, sort of on the fringes anymore. I yeah. think it's definitely sort of something that everybody is very accepting. I mean, I remember reading of The Balloonist by Eula Biss in a, in a contemporary poetry class at Columbia, and everyone was like, this is not poetry. Yeah. And now the prose poem, you know, Maggie Nelson's um, book, uh, what is that? Um the Argonauts, like, you know, oh, everybody, yeah. you know, yeah. I mean, they wouldn't necessarily consider it poetry, but I think that she does have her work rooted in poetry. Well, I think also with the prevalence of e-media, you know, you want to know why should I buy the book or why should I have the book? And then seem like having like in uh, in the in the book by Jennifer Egan, uh, uh, yeah. the Jennifer Egan book where she has the PowerPoint yeah. doesn't seem to translate well into an e-book. So, yeah. you know, or like the footnotes in uh uh, the Oscar Wilde. Uh, oh, Juno Diaz's. Yeah, Sandra yeah. Cisneros also has yeah, that. Yeah, a lot of footnotes. So th- therefore, these kinds of things seem to make it justified to buy the physical printed book, you know, yeah. with a lot of people who are moving towards e-media. So, you know. Yeah, so really no, I think it's yeah. a very exciting time in mm. poetry um, yeah. and in other genres as well. But I think especially for poetry, especially for writers of color, there's so many good books. Yeah. There's, there's just many so many good books. Out there. Now we're starting to see like more and more of an interest and promotion of, uh, you know, people who are previously maybe, you know, 50, 60 years ago would not be in the mainstream, but are starting to get into the mainstream and yeah. and, and telling their stories and we're listening. So I think it's really great. Yeah, it's so, a good time. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Right. This is Radio Free Brooklyn. This is the Truth to Power show. I'm your host, VJR Nathan. I hope that you're enjoying the program, and if you are, please go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.com backslash donate to support Radio Free Brooklyn as a nonprofit. Your donations are very valuable to us, and you can find out about perks through Patreon um, that offer donors like you or perks. And you can also sponsor this show if you'd like. Um, go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.com backslash truth to power. We're going to be uh, spotting a song called Black Hills by Garden and Villa. So please enjoy, and then after the song, I'll be doing a reading from uh, the book, The Theater and Its Double. Thank you.
close out the uh, Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn with a reading from The Theater and Its Double by Antonin Artard. Uh, it's a collection of manifestos originally published in 1938. And I'm reading from The Theater of Cruelty, First Manifesto. It's on page 89. We cannot go on prostituting the idea of theater whose only value is in its excruciating magical relation to reality and danger. Put in this way, the question of theater ought to arouse general attention, the implication being that theater, through its physical aspect, since it requires expression in space, the only expression, the only real expression, in fact, allows the magical means of art and speech to be exercised organically and, and together, like renewed exorcisms. The upshot of all this is that theater will not be giving its specific power of action until it's given its language. That is to say, instead of continuing to rely upon texts considered definitive and sacred, it is essential to put an end to the subjugation of the theater to the, set, to the text and to recover the notion that uh, a unique language halfway between gesture and thought. This language cannot be defined except by its possibilities for dynamic expression in space as opposed to the expressive possibilities of spoken dialogue. And what the theater can still take over from speech are its possibilities for extension beyond words, for development in space, for disassociative and vibratory action upon the sensibilities. This is the hour of intonations, of a word's particular pronunciations. Here too intervenes, besides the auditory language of sound, the visual language of objects, movement, attitudes, and gestures, but on the condition that their meanings their combinations can be carried to the point of becoming signs, making a kind of alphabet out of these signs. Once aware of this language in space, language of sounds, cries, lights, onomatopoeia, the theater must organize it into the veritable hieroglyphics with the help of characters and objects and make use of their symbolism and interconnections in relation to all organs and all levels. The question then for the theater is to create a metaphysics of speech, gesture, and expression in order to rescue it from all the servitude to psychology and human interest. But all this can be of no use unless beyond such an effort there is some kind of real metaphysical inclination and an appeal to certain unhabitual ideas which by their very nature cannot be limited or even formally depicted. These ideas which touch on creation, becoming, and chaos and, out, and all of a cosmic order and furnish a primary notion of a domain from which the theater can now, is now entirely alien. They are able to create a kind of passion equation between man, society, nature, and objects. That is to say that theater and actors are. It is not, moreover, a question of bringing metaphysical ideas directly onto the stage, but of creating what you might call temptations, indraughts of air around these ideas, and humor with its anarchy, poetry with its symbolism, and its images, furnishes a basic notion of ways to channel the temptation of these ideas. We must speak now about the uniquely material side of this language, that is, about all the ways and means it has of acting upon the sensibilities. It would be meaningless to say that it includes music, dance, pantomime, or mimicry. Obviously, it, includes, it utilizes movement, harmonies, rhythms, but only to the point they can concur in a sort of central expression without advantage for any one particular art. This does not mean that it does not use ordinary actions, ordinary passions, but like a springboard, it uses them in the same way that humor can be used as destruction. It can be served the coercive nature of laughter to the habits of reason. But by by and altogether oriental means of expression, 
This objective and concrete language of the theater can fascinate and ensnare its organs. It flows into this sensibility. Abandoning occidental uses of language, it turns words into incantations. It extends the voice. It utilizes the vibrations and qualities of the voice. It wildly tramples rhythms underfoot. It piles drive sounds. It seeks to exalt, to be numb, to charm, to arrest the sensibility. It liberates a new lyricism of gesture, which by its pre pre precipitation or its am amplitude in the air, ends by surpassing the lyricism of words. It ultimately breaks away from the intellectual subjugation of the language by conveying the sense of a new and deeper intellectuality, which hides itself beneath the gestures and signs, raised to the dignity of particular exorcisms. For this magnetism, all this poetry, all these direct means of spellbinding would be nothing if it were not used to put the spirit physically on the track of something else. If the true theater cannot give us the sense of creation of which we possess only one face, but which is completed on other levels. And it is of little importance whether these other levels are really conquered by the mind or not. By the intelligence, it would, it would, it would diminish them. It would, not, it would neither in interest nor sense. What is important is that by positive means, the sensitivity is put to a state of deepened and keener perception. And this is the very object of the magic and rites of which the theater is only a reflection. So how is this happening? This is the technique that's being used. This question of making the theater the proper sense of the word of function. Something as localized, as precise as the circulation of blood in the arteries or apparently chaotic development of dream images in the brain. Theater is that system. And this is accomplished by a thorough involvement, a genuine enslavement of the intention, the discipline, if you will. The theater will never find itself again. It will never constitute a true means of illusion, except by furnishing the spectator with the truthful perceptions of dreams in which this taste for crime, his erotic obsessions, his savagery, his utopian sense of life and matter, even his cannibalism pour out at a level not counterfeit or illusionary, but interior. In, in other words, the theater must pursue by all means a reassertion not only of the aspects of the objective and descriptive external world, if that even exists, but to the eternal world, that is, a man conquering metaphysically. It is only thus we believe that we should be able to speak again in the theater or about the theater and the rights of the imagination. Neither human nor poetry nor imagination means anything unless by anarchistic destruction, generating a prodigious flight of forms which will constitute the whole spectacle they succeed in organically revolve, revolving man, his ideas about reality, his poetic place in reality. To consider the theater as a secondhand psychological or moral function, and to believe that dreams themselves have only substitute function, is to diminish the profound poetic bearings of dreams as well as that of theater. If the theater, like dreams, is bloody and inhuman, it is more than just that. To manifest an unforgettably root within the idea of a perpetual conflict, a spasm in which life is continuously lacerated, in which everything is creation rises up and exerts itself against our pointed ranks. It is in order to perpetuate a concrete and immediate way the metaphysical ideas of certain fables or myths, whose very atrocity and energy suffice to show their origin and continue to exist in essential principles. That is being so. One sees that in, by its proximity to the principles which transform the energy to it poetically. This naked language of the theater, not virtual, but a real language, 
must permit by its use of man's nervous magnetism, the transgression of the ordinary limits of art and speech, in order to realize actively, that is to say magically in real terms, a kind of total creation in which man must reassume his place between dreams and events. The themes. It is not a matter of boring the public death with transcendent causal preoccupations, that there may be profound keys to thought and action in which to interpret the whole spectacle does not in general concern the spectator, who is simply not interested. But still, they must be there, and this concerns us. So, um, the spectacle. Every spectacle will contain a physical and objective element, perception, perceptible to all. Cries, groans, apparitions, surprises, all these things are the magical beauty of costume that take on a certain ritual modality, that incantation and beauty of the voice, the charms of harmony. All these things, they combine to create the typical language of theater that must be constituted as a mise-en-scene. Consider not simply as a degree of refraction upon a text, but at the point of departure for all theatrical creation. And it is the use of this language, the use of this duality between author and director that will be dissolved and replace a sort of unique creator upon which the double responsibility of the spectacle and the plot is based. This ends the Truths of Power show. Thank you.